You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, which is a story of real human sacrifice and service, especially during the pandemic. But first, just a few reminders. We are so very close. And I know you guys are probably annoyed by now, but we are so very close to making our announcement. Uh, we expect it within the next week. So I know I've been teasing you with it. I know you're probably still wondering what it is, but certainly we don't want to keep you hanging on any longer. Just got to dot some I's and cross some T's before we make everything official. I promise you, it's going to be very good news. I, I know you guys are going to be excited about what we have coming forward in 2021. So stay tuned for that as well. Don't forget about our Apple reviews. Guys, we've got to keep getting these numbers up. We want to crack the top 100 podcasts on Apple, and we can only do it with your help. So please continue to leave ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. doesn't have to be a long, lengthy review. Just a few words. Let us know what you think of the show. We certainly read them all and take into account what you guys have to say. But the more reviews we can get, the more likely we are to crack the top 100 podcasts, and that will continue to help us grow and reach a much bigger audience than we already do. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. And don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. I know Valentine's Day coming up soon. So if you're going to do some Valentine's Day shopping on Amazon, make sure you go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon button, and we'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. We donate that percentage back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. And we are so thankful that you guys continue to stay with us. Again, big things expected coming up in 2021. We know you're going to love what we have up on the horizon, as well as this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground podcast is currently a Marine Corps captain with over nine years of total service between the active component and the reserves. He has one deployment to Afghanistan. He currently also owns his own personal gym company, in California, to which he has a very unique story where during the pandemic, he donated all of his gym equipment to local civilians and the local populace in order to help them with their mental and physical strength. He is Captain Grant Roji joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Grant, welcome, man. Good to talk to you. Hey, great to be here. I've been a big fan of the show and uh, looking forward to chatting. Absolutely, man. And listen, I, I tell you, when we read up on your story, the idea uh, that during the pandemic, you basically took all the equipment from your company... And gave it away. I mean, you know, listen, that's uh, that's people helping people, and that's that's awesome, and uh, just just a real testament to that sort of uh, level of sacrifice, and that, that that you know, soldiers and Marines are willing to offer up to everybody. So I'm excited to hear about all that, and certainly we'll get to that. But uh, let's start back at the beginning, brother. How and why the Marine Corps? Well, I grew up in Beaufort, South Carolina, uh, home of Paris Island. So mm-hmm. my father's a preacher back there. And um, and so, you know, I, I used to work on shrimp docks and right across was the Paris Island firing range. And so, you know, kind of grew up all around Marines, lots of Marine members at the church, you know, stuff like that. And so I was kind of always around it um, and, and thought about it, but, you know, never pulled the trigger and then getting ready to go to college. Uh, I'm the fourth of five kids and my older uh, siblings had all gone to state schools and whatnot. And so I ended up looking at the Citadel. And so I, um, I went to the Citadel, you know, military college there in South Carolina where you can contract or not. I actually did not, um, did Why? four years. Yeah. Well, you know, at the time, uh, a couple people had told me some different things. They said, Hey, look, you can do this at any time. If you commit right now, 
you know, you're locked in, maybe, you know, your time and development during college will make you want to do something different. And, you know, the Marine Corps will still be here because I'd always kind of lean that way if I'd ever gone somewhere. And so I, um, yeah, I didn't. And I took a job. And then um, all my buddies, you know, all my classmates were deploying. And uh, I had a good buddy of mine who deployed and uh, hit some IEDs. A couple of those, you know, guys lost limbs and died. And I, I remember sitting there, I was a project manager for a concrete company. And I thought, I mean, I can do this anytime you know, uh, the time ticks on, on service. And, uh, so I think it was, uh, happened to be September 11th, 2011, um, went into the OSO office and said, Hey, I'm ready. And, and the, the captain at the time said, Hey, we're going to put on a video for you. And I said, no, 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 I'm good. Like, I, I like, I'm good. I, I went to the Citadel. I grew up by Paris Island. Like I'm ready. And, and the gunnery sergeant was like, about time, sir. we got someone ready to sign up. And, uh, and so, yeah, that, that started the journey. All right, so you end up at the Citadel. Uh, you, you had a background, at least uh, from afar, with the Marines. Are you the type of guy that did a lot of research on it, or you know, were you watching movies or anything like that that kind of helped you get some background on it, or is this one of those things where you just kind of went into it blind? I mean, so I definitely had you know cadet life background, and you know, seeing you know the people that run the institution there at the Citadel. It's a lot of retirees, but I did not at all investigate like, okay, you're going to go to officer candidate school. And then the basic school, I, I didn't look into any of that. I just, I, I read Nate Fick's book one bullet away and I was like, all right, I'm in. And so that was probably all the extent of my research was that book. What was the most surprising about, you know, going through the whole process? I mean, obviously, cause you go to the Citadel, you don't have to go to basic training, right? So you're not, right, right. you're not do, you're, you're sort of, see, you're like me in that sense. I did the ROTC route, so I never had the basic training experience. Um, but that said, it's a different experience. Uh, I think there's value in it, especially from the officer side uh, in, in that process and, and four years of sort of uh, ROTC or four years of officer training, if you will, in college uh, sort of prepare right. you well enough, I think. I mean, depending on where you go and what you do. But uh, again, it's not the same. It's different. Not one's not better than the other. But that said, you know, that experience, how did you feel it prepared you? Well, I think the the Citadel definitely prepared me in terms of, you know, some basic military concepts and, and things like that. But I think your first, you know, question of what was I surprised with, I would say it was, you know, I think this happens to a lot of officers across every branch is when you when you go in, you know, I didn't necessarily think I'm going the officer route to lead Marines. I thought, OK, uh, I have a college degree and now I'm going into the service. And so, you know, this route is better. And when anyone's going in, I think they think, you know, everyone pictures themselves as the guy, you know, kicking the door down or whatever the case may be. And I think probably what surprised me was how good the, in my opinion, the Marine Corps as an institution is at during that training pipeline, making young officers understand, hey, it's not about you. It's about the Marines or those under you. And, you know, I think that was probably if I look back to, you know, sitting in South Carolina and deciding to join, that wasn't what I had thought of how it was going to be that, you know, you're not going to care about your accomplishments and what you get to do. Obviously anyone in the service, you know, is, is ready for whatever happens. But, you know, I think that what surprised me was how well the Marine Corps convinced me, um, you know, that it's, th this isn't about you. And, and I, I think they do a great job of that. Was there a seminal moment where that really came clear for you, like, whether it was, you know, at the Citadel or in the initial part of training um, that, you know, you, you really start to learn kind of those core values that are so necessary? 
Yeah, I mean, I really think it's probably the Citadel definitely taught me some of that stuff. I really think it's the Marine Corps, the basic school. I mean, because you go to officer candidate school and, you know, it's just a 10 week physical gut check, little mental stuff going on. And they're already starting to, you know, sprinkle in those topics. But I think it's really the basic school, in my opinion. And, you know, I think the Marine Corps really does a good job at selecting good um good role models there. And I think it was probably there that I realized like, Oh, this is kind of a different thing. Like, sure. I want to do these MOSs, but what I get is kind of irrelevant. There's some 18 year old kid somewhere signing a piece of paper that has no idea what he's doing and maybe, you know, trying to escape some life or who knows what it is. And that's who you're really here for. And um, so, yeah, I think at the basic school was for me as a person, the most transformative, you know, period of time. All right, so when you graduate from the Citadel, uh, you know, you get to your, ba- your OCS and uh, your basic course uh, through that. Yep. When do you hit the fleet at what point in time? Yeah, so I go in six months to the basic school. At the end of that, you get, you know, your job. I got selected as an artillery officer, spent uh, almost six months in Fort Sill learning that stuff. And uh, let's see, early January 2012, no, 13, something like that. Um I land out, I get assigned to HIMARS, 5th Battalion, 11th Marines on Camp Pendleton. Um, and, you know, become a, uh, a fire direction officer for, for rocket artillery. And I remember I checked in, sat down with uh, then Captain Cooley, now Lieutenant Colonel. And uh, I remember I sat down, I'm in my office, he lays it out and says, uh, and I, I think it was 160. In 160 days, we'll be in Afghanistan. Here's the list of your platoon. Here's all the training events. You know, get your platoon ready. And I was like, wow, that happened quick. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so uh, within six months, you're deployed. I mean, do you feel like you're ready that quickly coming out? I mean, yeah, I think so. We had a real good team. I was in a, you know, the battery is called Tango Battery. And yes and no, you know, you you have no idea what to expect. So at that point, you know, you asked me before, and I'd done all the research and how it goes. The answer is no. But as soon as I got in, you know, while I was in TBS, while I was in Fort Sill, you know, I couldn't. I couldn't soak up and read enough material. And so, but as soon as you hit the fleet, you realize, you know, as soon as you see your first staff sergeant and, you know, you've dealt with them the whole time through the training pipeline, but, you know, there's that moment that you're like, oh, I'm in charge. And, uh, and I've, you know, someone's told me what to do this whole time. And yes, there's tons of leadership evaluation stuff, but you realize, oh man, this staff sergeant's been deployed three times, you know, two to Iraq, one to Afghanistan. My corporal's been to Afghanistan twice, right? And so you start to definitely think, you know, hey, I'm going to go to Marine Corps principles. I'm going to, you know, go to the doctrine and the things they taught me on leadership and war fighting. And, um, and so that was kind of my approach. And uh, yeah, and you just look for the proficiency and the, uh, you know, the mission essential task. Hey, we got to, these are our tasks as a platoon. And if we hit them, you know, the Marine Corps says we'll be ready. And so you kind of got to say, hey, we got to train to those standards. How old are you when you uh, first deploy? Just out of curiosity. Let's see. Uh, 20. I was a little bit older because I graduated, you know, worked for two years. 25. Okay. Yeah, 25. And part yeah. of part of the reason I asked that is because, you know, I'm thinking about your situation and kind of what I went through. And, and I can say wholeheartedly, and, and I don't even have any shame in saying it. Uh, fortunately. I didn't deploy until I was older. I, I don't know right. if as a 21, 22-year-old second lieutenant, if they had thrown me in that situation, how I would have performed if I ever would have performed it well. I'd like to think I would have performed to the same level, but I just don't know. I, I think that there was a lot more 
from the military I had to learn and a lot of hard lessons I had to learn early on in my career. So when you look back on it, do you feel like, you know, the fact that they threw you in this position, you know, mentally you were sort of ready for all that? I mean, I, I think my only edge was that I had worked a little bit and gone to the Citadel. You know what I mean? So I was a little bit removed from college life and those sort of things. But I mean, looking back, would a couple more years of experience made me better? Absolutely. I remember we deployed with two uh, platoons of one of HIMARS, one of cannons. And I remember the cannons uh, platoon commander, you know, he was towards the end about to pin on captain. He'd already deployed once. And I remember we'd go in and sit down with the CEO and I'd be like, man, this guy's got it like all figured out. And then I would stop and think about it and be like, okay, well, he's already done this before. You know, he's got more experience. But I think that's the nature of the service is that, you know, they expect people to, to, to do, you know, when, when, when they're called upon to respond and lead or, you know, act or, you know, depending on what their job is. But, um, but yeah, no, there was tons of stuff that I was in no way ready for. Uh, and there were some things, you know, where I think, yeah, sure, you know. Um, the background helped a little bit. I think age is the biggest key factor. My little brother just finished OCS. Uh, you know, he's going in as a JAG. He's 26 now, 27. And, you know, I told him, I said, the best thing that you have going on is 27 years of life experience. Yeah. Um, because that just helps so much. Yeah. And, and again, I, I think that that life experience is so invaluable. And, and you go back to, Let's think about the men and women we choose to lead in the combat, especially those young privates, right? And and in the PFCs, like, you know, 18, 19 year old kids who have none of that experience. And, you know, I'm in my 40s now, my early 40s, so I can say this with, with a lot of veracity, but it doesn't seem like, you know, to a 40 year old, the difference between a 19 year old and a 25 year old is squat. But the difference right. between a 25 year old to a 19 year old is miles of, of experience, right? Like, you think you've experienced so much more of life. You know, a 19-year-old is just a kid. Well, yeah, to, to a guy who's 40, a 25-year-old generally is still a kid. But, you know, I mean, for those guys that you're choosing to lead into combat, those guys and gals you're taking into combat, the, the lack of experience that they have, how much they genuinely depend on your leadership in those moments, I, I don't know if at, the, at that time young 23, 24-year-old lieutenants can really understand that sort of level of responsibility. I don't think, you know, until later, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think, you know, until later. Cause I mean, I'm 32 now and I go, man, I know so much more about life than I did at 30. And I remember turning to 30 being like 25. I was a baby. Right. But you don't actually know the gravity of what you're doing. If I were, what I would tell you honestly is if I look back at, you know, taking a platoon into Afghanistan to provide artillery support during the wind down, you know, with all these ROEs and all this crazy stuff, I had no idea the gravity of what was actually doing, right? And I'm not saying like, oh, we did like so much amazing stuff. I'm saying to each of those young Marines, because I still, you know, talk to those guys to this day and they talk about how developmental it was for them. Or I think of my leaders during that time and, you know, my captain at that time, you know, and how development, how much developed I was. And, and I just don't think, you know, until later, but it's, I'll always be amazed by the services, you know, the way we do officers, uh, you know, in the last century, it's, it's kind of amazing. And it, I guess it works because we keep doing it over and over. Yeah. Uh, and, and I want to get back to your story, but we've just hit on some things yeah. that are really resonating with me. You know, one of the things I do now more than anything uh, is I actually take the time to sit down and talk to my junior officers, especially lieutenants, because I, I look back on it. 
I wish I had more captains, more majors, more lieutenant colonels who would have sat down and just had a conversation with me one-on-one. And, right. and I don't think leaders do enough. I think we're so busy leading sometimes and so busy trying to get missions accomplished and orders out and, and you know, uh, fraggles and things of that nature that, that we get swallowed up by asking people to do their job that we forget to do our job in in that sense of true leadership and, and talking to people and finding out who the people you are are leading. And, and I think I would have been much more in tune with the military at a younger age if I had people connect with me on that level. And I think that's some of that what you're hinting at. No, yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, I remember, I feel like I was very fortunate, you know, with my first run of kind of leaders that sat me down and did stuff. And I still was so baffled. I, I mean, I'm very structured. You know, I, I like a structured thing, how it's supposed to work. And I remember learning, hey, you're going to have a platoon commander's notebook. You're going to write down the name of every Marine. You're going to find out their wife's name, their kid's name, whatever. When you get your staff sergeant, within 30 days, you're going to sit him down. You're going to tell him what you expect, all that stuff, initial counselings. And I remember getting my first platoon and sitting down, Staff Sergeant Miller, who'd been in for 14 years, and bringing him in. I said, okay, we're going to do our, our initial counseling. And he goes, what? And I said, well, we, well, yeah, I'm going to kind of go over like, you know, your billet description and what I think all you know, the things you should be doing. And he goes, so I've been in 13 years. No one's ever done this for me. And I thought he was lying. I was like, how is this possible? I was like, is this a joke? They're playing on a lieutenant. And then I remember like the first go through of, you know, staff and COs and sergeants hearing the same thing over and over again. And I think it's twofold. One, it's as you know, maybe the captains, you know, the senior company grade guys and the field grades not taking the time. Sure. Maybe I think also like it takes courage, you know, as a young officer to like, what am I supposed to tell, you know, a gunnery sergeant that I expect of him? You know, I just came in here. I'm wondering if I put my rank on. Right. And so I think it's a, a mix of those two. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I think the development, you know, of, of young officers is huge. And I, I look back and have a list of names of, you know, officers I call to this day that I, I, called and written letters to him just said hey like thanks I, I when you sat me down and called me to your office I, I thought I was in trouble and like didn't know what was happening but like I look back and all of those things were very formative all right back to your story so yeah I got uh, it. You, you get to the ground at the fleet they tell you within six months you're heading out to Afghanistan uh you get to Afghanistan yeah. what are you told where you're going what's your mission <clears throat> yeah so we're going to provide artillery fires and you know kind of two things one base security, bastion leatherneck uh, with cannon fires, and then to the long range stuff. Mainly at that point, you know, ANA, Afghan National Army had taken over a bunch of the areas with MARSOC support. And so primarily we were, you know, providing rocket artillery in terms of the deeper threat uh, for the soft guys. And um, I mean, it was kind of, we had some exciting times, but in terms of, you know, what you think it's going to be, you read the books and how it plays out. It's, hey, we went in, we had a compound, and we set up, you know, 24-hour artillery fires. You know, artillery doesn't stop. There's no, you know, coming back. It's, hey, anytime there's grunts out there or whoever that needs it, you know, we have to be responsive. And so it looked like to me, you know, 12 hours on, you know, where I'm the FDO, and then I swap with the staff sergeant, and, you know, we're just providing artillery fires. And, you know, we're shooting some rockets, had some really good missions, and, um, and so it was interesting, though, to watch at that time, you know, it becomes very 
mechanical kind of clockwork and it can be very much so in the artillery world you know not always there's a lot of times you know during the push and stuff artillery is bounding and stuff but you know for rocket artillery which is you know this kind of the future the way the marine corps is going it's like hey set up a spot and i can reach you know 80 kilometers in any direction and so really what i felt like um i needed to do as a young leader was you know avoid the complacency, keep Marines engaged. And there's enough things that happened that kind of, you know, made sure that that they didn't get complacent, but it was, you know, keeping it going. Hey, if a mission lands, you know, we got to process this thing immediately, all those kind of stuff. And so, um, so yeah. And then at the same time, what I did not expect was like the admin logistical burden. I had no idea that when you deploy, you're going to spend half the time doing that. Cause what was the U S doing retrograding as many people out as possible. So, you know, we're trying to get from, I think there was nine launchers when we landed down to three, you know, we were supposed to turn the lights off. Uh, obviously we're still there, but, um, you know, it was, it was an interesting time in terms of that. And so you, you're trying to get focused on the mission and, and remember what all these different teams that are out there and providing artillery support at the same time, you know, you got to do this big logistical, Hey, how are we going to get these things back to you know, wherever so that we can, you know, fly them back to the U S and that part kind of took me by surprise. All right. So your first experience in combat, uh, obviously you have none, obviously, you know, all the training in the world isn't going to simulate what combat is really like. Now, again, it's, it's a little different for artillery officers. And I don't say that as a pejorative because, um, you're not necessarily the way the infantry is, you know, facing bullets and gunfire, up close, unless, of course, you know, you know what's really hit the fan. Um, right. That said, uh, did did your did your Marines talk to you about their combat experience and sort of give you their their version of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that was kind of constant. I was real lucky to, you know, my launcher chiefs, uh, you know, in a, in a HIMAR artillery platoon, you, you have your standard layout, but even in cannon artillery, those chiefs are you know the pinnacle sure you got a battery guns you got a platoon sergeant but it's the it's the eight guys on the howitzer or you know the six-man team including the resupply rocket vehicle for the high mars that be, gets the tight-knit groups and all of my chiefs had previously deployed and so you know they would even mentor me along the way of you know hey sir last last year we were here and it was like this and then you know this happened. And so it was pretty interesting. They talked a lot, mentored a lot and mentored me a lot. I remember I got promoted to first Lieutenant while deployed and, uh, I had a corporal and a Sergeant promote me. And I remember they like, couldn't believe it. And I said, Hey, I've learned more from you guys about how to fight the enemy than anything else. And I sure all these different officers and people throughout the training pipeline, but like, this is the real deal. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think talking open dialogue was huge. What is some of the, you know, biggest challenges for you during this deployment? So I have sort of in the macro picture. Yeah. Um, I think it was probably, it, this sounds weird cause you know, it's now six or seven years ago, but connectivity was tough. You know, we had a little hub where you could go get Wi-Fi. And it was like trying to keep Marines focused to me. I was like, Hey, everyone, I'm, I'm off the grid for nine months or whatever. But, you know, people coming up with things of, Hey, I need to talk to my family about this and trying to keep Marines focused. And then we had a couple of, a a couple of events, you know, um, 
very shortly in, uh, had some rockets hit Leatherneck, you know, not too far from our position to the point like that everyone's in a bunker and then everyone's like, oh, but I think, and I'm wired a little bit different. I don't know if it's because I'm from South Carolina and grew up working or whatever, but I think what kind of drove, the challenge for me was the way I grew up, if you're on the clock for the boss, anytime he looks at you, you're, you're being productive. And I think like the younger generation, which I'm a part of, like, I'm not saying I'm not a part of, but it was, you know, oh, nothing's happening right now. Like, I'm just going to sit over here and do nothing. Right. Instead of like thinking forward of what could happen. And so, you know, had some events that definitely brought people's attention to, hey, we can get rocketed and killed. Hey, these guys are getting killed out there. and We need to give artillery, uh, you know, fires faster. And then the probably the biggest one, though, would be we'd work a lot with the targeting guys. And we'd have these things, you know, at that point, there was a lot of ANA, you know, on friendlies. And so we'd be targeting these guys watching drone feeds of guys walk, you know, driving around with mortar tubes, this and that. And, you know, uh, forces calling in, hey, boom, we got them. Here's the location. We have the launchers on the firing point, you know, ready to do a 12 rocket volley, whatever it is. And then at that point in time in the war, you had to have a general's approval to shoot HIMARS. So we're like, you know, sitting on G, waiting on O to, you know, fire the rockets. And I remember, you know, there'd be, I think it was General Yu was, you know, on the phone and he's like, yeah, I think we should do it. And it's, and it's just weird. It's stuff you don't expect. You know, you're like sitting there and, and it turns out that you're monitoring all this through watching feeds and then you're on a speakerphone. There's a general on the line and then a JAG officer's like, wait, 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 what if they need, are trying to render aid? And so the thing that we really had to fight was the frustration of the missions we didn't shoot because, you know, Marines, Marines are killers. You know, they came over there to shoot artillery and beat the enemy. And it's like they watched stuff, you know, for weeks and then we'd have an opportunity to go seize it and it wouldn't happen. And so that was another thing where Marines would get frustrated. Um, and that's where it's interesting. I don't know that they're thinking about the biggest context and you're trying to explain it to them constantly of like, Hey, this is what happens if we have collateral damage. Hey, this is what happens if, you know, a woman or a child dies and we shoot this miss mission, but they're like, Hey, we're here. We've been watching this. These are the people that's the point of origin for where they shot the guys over there the other day and kind of managing that frustration um, of, of the stuff that did not happen was probably one of the challenges I did not expect. Did you guys end up losing anybody on that deployment to get anybody injured? We did not. Very fortunate. Yeah. I mean, you know, you come out of a, a deployment clean like that, and I, I wonder, um, you know, when you talk to other guys who weren't so fortunate, um, what sort of feelings and emotions does it conjure up for you? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, one of my gunnery instructor at Fort Sill, uh, now Lieutenant Colonel Palka, um, you know, he, he recently, let's see, I think it's 18 now, went into Syria, went and long story short, direct hit on his, uh, on one of his artillery pieces and, uh, killed, killed the chief and, and critically wounded a, a bunch of other ones. And, you know, it's an interesting feeling because when you talk to him, uh, we're very good friends to this day. We served together up in Seal Beach. And, it, you know, when he thinks of war, it's a completely different thing to him you know, because it's, it's, it's one of those guys didn't come back. And so, you know, I always tell what I always told the Marines is it's 
the service, the Marine Corps, I always talk in Marine terms, but, you know, I include all the branches. It's chance and timing, right? Like, you know, I, I happened to land and get to deploy right away. We did get to shoot missions and kill the enemy and do stuff. But, you know, had it been two years later, you know, it could have been this other thing. And so it's the, the point is that Marines or, or servicemen have to be ready to stand up when called upon and do what they do. And so to me, you know, I think if, if that's the approach you took, Hey, did I take care of my men? Were they ready for what, no matter what happened that, you know, it's not always tied to someone dying, but it's tied to, you know, the training and, and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting feeling. And, you know, we've, we've lost a couple more since from that unit since then. And that's been an interesting thing to deal with because, you know, now later they've died from, you know, whether it's combat or suicide and that sends, you know, shockwaves back through that group that was tight. And I think that's probably um, one of the things I'm probably more passionate about with servicemen and keeping up with people and, you know, leadership. Uh, sure. I still wear it, the, uh, the uniform and the reserves, but it doesn't end when you take it off mm -hmm. because, you know, um, I just recently had a staff sergeant kill himself and uh, shook me to the core, right? Shook that whole unit. That was my unit in Seal Beach and uh, during COVID. And, you know, those are the things that sure, there's the wartime, there's the combat, there's the deployment, you know, there's the training for it, all that. You're very focused and everything. But when that ends, you know, that's when I think emotionally for some of these guys, you know, it becomes more difficult. Now, a little bit of a tangent there, but I think you get the point. Yeah. Okay. So, and then how does that deployment end? So we, we were supposed to bring all the artillery pieces home. Um, and then they went to extend us and had a little bit of an issue there because uh, a lot of guys were going to fall off contract. And again, these were things like we're government bureaucracy stuff as, uh, as a first lieutenant. Now, I had no idea, like, you're deployed. Okay, they want you to stay three more months. But six guys in the Cannon Platoon and four guys in the Highmars Platoon, if they stay that long, are going to fall off contract. And so to me, it's like, don't you just extend their contract? Well, well but no, because this. And so kind of managing that. And so it was like, hey, you're going to stay, you're going to stay, you're going to stay. And the finals are like, you're not going to stay. And so there ended up being another battery, Sierra, that came. And they came in for, I don't want to cut them short, but like a, a short duration, I think 60 days. We took a lot of gear home and they and they stayed and kind of brought artillery out of, out of Afghanistan. And then we came back to the States. And now it's a whole new set of challenges. And this is probably where I developed, you know, kind of the most uh, in my mind is when I landed in the fleet, there was a mission. Hey, we're going here to provide artillery support for these people and these people, you know, fire missions need to be down under this time, you know, all this stuff. You land back and there was no high, more HIMARS deployments. It was not, you know, the war was winding down. And so, you know, think of who's in the service at that time, you know, not near the same as the 9-11-2001 guys, but still, you know, people that were signing up and, you know, wanted to go to combat. And so they're like, so we're now I have this group of guys that deployed two, three times, one with me. And they're like, so we're training for another operation in 29 Palms? Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so that becomes the hard part is, you know, I, I think that's one of the bigger jobs I've learned as an officer, I, I think, and staff NCOs as well, is, you know, trying to make the bulk of your Marines, which is junior Marines, understand that being ready is half the battle. Mm 
right? You know, is, is staying engaged and all that stuff. So that was a big transition into, um, you know, kind of how do we, you know, keep the guys engaged in this changing environment? Because before that, that battalion of Mars, it was, you know, Romeo, Sierra, Tango, Papa, or whatever it was, you know, boom, 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 boom. And everyone knew like, Hey, every year I'm deploying. And it was like that for five, six years. And so it was definitely a big shift. So you get back uh, and it ends up being your only deployment um, through your yep. first eight years of active duty. Sort of how does that work out? Well, I think it was interesting. So a couple of things happened on there that that's probably worth talking about is one of the things was during preparation is, you know, because we'll eventually get to strength training. And, and I should probably pause and go back to that. I remember going to the field and going on hikes and stuff, training for the deployment. And being baffled at how like weak a lot of these 18 year olds were. Like I couldn't believe it. You know, they're they're five, seven, 160 pounds soaking wet. And I just I thought, we're gonna go to combat like this. And I remember that scaring me. And that's kind of when I started, you know, saying, Hey, how can we strength train these guys to get them stronger? And you know, we started barbell lifting and that sort of stuff. And and sometimes during the monotony of, you know, the deployment itself, we we build out a little barbell gym. Not much, but, you know, enough to squat, press, bench press, deadlift. And that ended up being kind of the thing that keep people kept people engaged. And so then when I came back, I had kind of another thing where I thought, hey, I, I saw how effective this was for Marines. And now Marines are back in the U.S., no deployment in sight. They don't know what to do. You know, they're drinking heavily. You know, they're going out, they're starting to have issues. And so we kind of started, I started training them on lifting. And saying like, hey, you need to have a focused, you know, thing that it's not just, hey, we're going to get up and run up the hill again. But, you know, yesterday I squatted 350, you know, two days now I'm going to squat 355 and trying to focus that. And so that kind of became a part of, you know, we did a lot of stuff the last two years at 511. But that became a big part of, you know, the the training is, you know, getting these guys strong and ready. And I kind of thought of it as a legacy, like, hey. I, I think the Marine Corps gets some physical fitness things wrong. I think they're too, you know, focused on endurance. You know, I, I, when I went to combat, we never ran three miles, but there was some times that we had to do quick burst of energy and, and you know, think sh with strength. And so I kind of thought like, Hey, if I can teach people how to get people stronger, that'll be huge. And then, you know, I went and became the inspector instructor for reserve unit. You know, now I'm in the reserve, so I, I, I'm the active duty, you know, captain over reserve thing. And that was a whole new set of problems. And we did some stuff out of there. You know, I went to the Republic of Georgia six times, uh, you know, and took a reserve unit, you know, over there and to the Transcaucasus for a couple week exercise. And, you know, when you think about it, and I know you're in the, in the reserves now, it's like, oh, yeah, another exercise. But all that stuff becomes really important. How do the Marines act? How do they look when they travel? Okay, now you're there with all these different, you know, foreign uh, foreign militaries, you know, so it had its own. I feel, you know, fulfilled for the things for the things that I did. So what made you finally decide to leave the active component? Well, you know, so I'm winding down inspector instructor duty. My initial thought had been, you know, do four years, get out. Um and I wanted, had wanted to deploy and I, I was grateful that I did. And, you know, I, I took the job up in Seal Beach, California, working with the reserves. And I just got to this point in my life where I said, okay, 
uh, for me, and maybe this is just, I'd always wanted to run my own business and do something. And I just thought it was like this. I always saw the 10 year mark as like a big thing, right? Like if you cross the 10 years, you're over halfway, you might as well go to retirement. And so as I was creeping up on that, um, you know, I'd gotten selected for the expeditionary war fighting school and some other stuff. And I, I just thought, man, okay, if I go there, it's a year in Quantico. Now I'm at nine years and then I'm going to take three year orders. And it was a really, really tough decision for me um, because I was really split. I had, you know, kind of by accident opened up a gym out of my garage while I was in, but it was enough of a taste to me entrepreneurial wise that like, Hey, I know I can go make something work on my own. And I was a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of the, um, the the bureaucracy of the whole thing just grinds on you. And I, uh, and I, part of it was, I kind of realized like every year you're in, in my opinion, and, and you've been in much longer than me, but you know, you're getting further away from being connected to the Marines. And, um, and you so mean the Marines guess, at the ground level, you mean like the actual at the ground Marines. level, yeah. you're the young guys, right. you're the actual guys. Yeah. Right. And, you know, here I am now focused way more on making PowerPoints and managing, you know, maintenance of stuff. And, and while all that I, I, I learned greatly from, I, I kind of was like, Hey, is this what I want to do? And ultimately I said it wasn't, you know, and, uh, and I went into the reserves. I'm in it now and I'm so glad because it still keeps you connected and still keeps you a part of that. And you still get, you know, there's opportunity to do stuff, but um, it was a tough decision for me, but I, um, yeah, I, I thought, uh, I, I, I thought there was, you know, stuff I could do outside the core. And remember, uh, the reserves are great because you get to date the military. You don't have to marry it. Remember? That's right. You just get to date them. Yeah. yeah hey, you're talking to a single guy here. <laughs> so uh, you you make this decision um, and you, you, you depart the active component. Uh, did you know at that point in time what you wanted to do in the civilian sector? Well, yeah. So I I had opened – a guy had approached me about opening a company while I was still in. Okay. And he said, hey, you have a – I'm something called a starting strength coach. It's a certain certification by a guy named Mark Ripito. There's not a lot of them. I was listed on their website at the time. And this guy came in and started training in my garage. And he said, hey, I'm going to try and get my certification. I said, great. He said, if I get it, I want to open a gym. And I kind of had in the back of my mind because I had seen what strength training had done for young Marines. That was the biggest part. I had seen, you know, 17, 18-year-old kid small dripping wet private pfc lance corporal and when you take his deadlift from nothing to 315 all of a sudden you know he can walk into a room with a little swagger and you know i'd seen what strength training had done for guys mentally like that was probably the biggest thing you know hey i just got a divorce my wife just cheated on me this that whatever and i'd be like hey let's go lift right like the, the bar's always the same 200 pounds always weighs 200 pounds as Henry Rollins says, right? Like everything's same. And I had seen what that had done. And so in the back of my mind, I thought if I leave the service, the general public needs this. Uh, they need something kind of, that's not a fad. It's not six weeks to six pack abs. You know, it's, it's, you need to learn how to do something hard because if you do can do something hard, then when life throws you, I don't know, a coronavirus, you won't freak out. Right. Um, and so that was kind of my approach. So back up, he said, if I pass, I want to open a gym. I said, great. I'm in the Marine Corps, bro. I could be gone at any point. 
And he said, well, yeah, but like, I feel like it would be fine. You know, we could just test it out. You know, we'll just establish an LLC and go for it. And I said, okay. And so we did. Um, and, you know, I'd go in there a couple nights a week and on Saturdays, if we weren't training and, you know, I, I remember being gone for a couple of weeks in the Republic of Georgia and being like, oh man, like what's going on at the gym? Like, you know, it's like, is it going to be profitable, whatever, and starting to have that stuff. And then about six months in, he said, Hey, I want to go back to the tech life. I'm out. <laughs> and so, you know, which ended up being one of the greater things that happened to me, but here I am now. Okay. I own a gym. Um, and so as I was getting out of the core, I said, you know, I can make this work. I think that what the cores taught me is genuine care for people and like what strength training does for people on a lot of levels, you know, will resonate with, with, uh, with Americans or, you know, with anybody to, to get stronger. And so I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go the gym route. Interesting. I mean, you know, it, it's sort of a bold move for you at that point in time. And, and, you know, it's not exactly a lucrative field, you know, I mean, did you, so, well, okay, go ahead. <laughs> No, I was going to say, no, it's not. So I think a little context, you know, our thing that we do is we say, you know, it's different than a gym. We're not talking about $30 memberships. What we're really selling, you know, is coaching. And you're saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, the primary person is you, right? It's it's the man and woman over 40 who start to lose function. What happens? You're born, you grow up, you're getting stronger, stronger, and stronger every day. And then one day you start to go the other way. Muscles atrophy. It's what happens, starts happening to people in their 30s unless they're doing something about it. And so, you know, as people age, they have to do something to be stronger. So my kind of approach was, hey, you take the big barbell uh, exercises, um, you teach people how to do them correctly and you add a little bit of weight each time. And this isn't, I didn't develop this. This is, you know, uh, it's an organization called starting strength led by a Texan named Mark Ripito. But I wanted to take that and package it into something consumable, you know, for the consumer. Okay. I come in, I do my intro class. I learn how to do something. Now I go into the gym three days a week. I have a coach telling me how much weight to put on the bar, whatever. And I also developed a very high touch you know, high dollar, a, a membership, you know, is 375 a month in my gyms in California. You know, it's like 30 bucks a session. And we'll talk about how COVID, you know, played into all this. But it was very people who know they need to be stronger. Their doctor tells them whatever, you know, that they need to do it and, and, and are willing to pay that. And they pref- appreciate the professional advice. And I did see it as lucrative. And we'll talk about this, too. But I, you know, I thought, Hey, you can make like a little micro gym focused on a local area where you have a tight knit group of people that care about strength and, and then you scale that, right. And you, and you make 20 gyms. That was initially what I thought. And so, you know, I made two very quickly. Um, and that was, it wasn't, it it was kind of twofold. It was one, I did think as a businessman, I could make it work, uh, I also thought it was very important. You know, I I got my parents lifting uh, around that time. And I thought, you know, my mom and dad, they have 13 grandkids and they're in their 60s. I'm like, you can't just like get old and then be the mom, the grandma, the walker. And then you fall and break your hip and then you get the flu and you die. Right. Like you like you you have to be strong. And so I was very passionate about kind of what we were doing. I want to fast forward here a little bit, because obviously you grow your business to a point where it's sustainable. Yeah, you, things are, are going well, and you've got a solid uh, company called the Strength Company yep. that, that you have built out, and then the pandemic hits. 
And so you've been at this for a couple of years, right? Like how many years were you in business when the pandemic hit? Uh, about two and a half, three, three years. So we started in July of 16. Okay. So, so July of 16, and I'll be honest with you, when I first opened, I'm in there, I'm doing all the sweat. So like, yeah, it's making money, but like, I'm not paying myself, right? I'm transitioning out of the Marine Corps, it's working. And I say, hey, if this is going to work, I got to open gym two. I hire one, two, three, four, five, you know, six employees. We got two gyms open. And, you know, we just kind of start to turn the corner at the end of 2019, where what I thought it could do financially, hey, I got coaches that are making decent money. The gym can kick it off. I can do okay. We had finally turned it. And this is after, you know, sweating bullets for months, like, you know, trying to convince people to do this. And so January goes, February goes, we're starting to pick up steam. And I'm like, okay, location three, if we're doing it, we're in. I got a lease in hand, you know, down in another city uh, in my county, and I'm ready to go. And March 17th, you know, you got to shut down because of COVID. And I had been following it. I follow an author, Nassim Taleb, on Twitter, and he had kind of been saying, hey, this coronavirus thing's going to be a big deal. And I had been watching it and thinking, I was like, well, like our, our systems design only eight people at a time, you know, small group classes. Like, I think it'll be okay. And so I pushed for as long as I could. And then, you know, city of Costa Mesa and Villa Park said, you got to close. And so this is when things transition fast. Cause I've always known, you know, uh, like I told you, I'm in a, I'm in a high touch, high dollar business. And so I thought if I'm closed at the time, they said two weeks, I thought, man, like I, people are going to quit, you know, people are going to quit. Right. And like, what are people supposed to do for a couple of weeks? So I brought over a couple coaches at night and I just said, Hey, tomorrow we got 16 stations across two gyms, but we got extra barbells. we got extra plates. You know, we got all the accessories that come with the gym. I said, let's, let's just spread it out. And they were like, like take it out of the gym. I was like, yeah. And so we kind of mapped out, you know, 150 members. Okay. In this neighborhood, you know, five or six different people could reach it at different times. And we just started to deploy all the equipment. And, um, and that was, you know, the very next day, I think March 17th, we were told to close March 18th, we started to deploy the equipment. And, you know, we just call members, hey, we want to bring you some stuff. And they were like, couldn't believe it. And we started putting it in people's houses. And that's when everything sort of changed. You know, we started doing that. Um, the news picked it up. And and then I started getting just phone calls for equipment, phone call after phone call. Hey, can I get some equipment? Can I get some of equipment? And so we started going up and buying up warehouses. And I still remember a conversation with my dad. He goes, wait a minute. The government just told you to shut down gyms and you just gave all your stuff away. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, did, did, did they sign a contract? And I was like, no. He's like, well, like, are they going to pay per month? And like, this is where I, it's probably the Marine in me or just how I viewed like uh, the culture at the gym was, I didn't think any of that was necessary. Like, it wasn't like, Hey Mark, like I'm going to bring you this, but you have to pay me this. Now, what I did think in the back of my mind is if I continue to provide value to my clients that they'll take care of me, but like nothing was written out. I mean, it was by the time it was done, I remember trying, it's like in the, in the service, right? Like, Hey, remember this MVG's over there and this M16's over there and you're trying to track it. And we're trying to do that. And by the time the gyms were completely gutted, I was like, I have no idea where anything is. Wow. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not a business major. I think I was a business minor, if I remember correctly. 
but it just doesn't seem like good business. Like, I mean, you know, you have, yeah. you have inventory. Giving it all away doesn't make you any money. So I know you had this demand, but, you know, at what point in time do you do you even have to weigh out how am I going to afford to live if I'm continuing to do this? Like, I mean, wh- wh- does the word profit come into your mind or we're not even thinking like that? Well, so initially, I think first two, three days weren't really thinking about that. But I was thinking that if I give members equipment, they'll stay on. And so what I did right away is we launched Zoom coaching, right? So like, what do we do? You come into the class and a coach tells you what to do and how to do it. And so we immediately went live on Zoom and started coaching people. And that kept a lot of members happy and kept a lot of them sane. Because like, you know, the initial lockdowns, now everyone's like, oh yeah, I got to stay in my house. I'm not allowed to go eat pizza or whatever the case is. But initially, you know, people were like really freaked out. And, you know, the Monday, Wednesday, Friday crew at 5.30 p.m. logs on, their coach is still there and everyone they usually lift with. And they were like, oh, this is kind of great. And so we kind of started doing that. But that's when I, you know, as a team, I, I said, we got to think about this long term. And, you know, within two weeks, we had started making, you know, wooden squat racks because we had ran out. And, you know, I was buying equipment as much as I could. We were making, you know, wooden bench presses and giving it to more members. And I just said, man, I don't think the gyms are like coming back for a while. And so that's kind of when the viewpoint switched to, hey, we're still providing the same thing of strength training. But I think the focus needs to be on in people's homes. And if the gyms come back, then that, that's a plus. But as a business person, I need I can't just sit around and expect like my environment to change, right? I mean, it's it's war fighting. What happens? War is constantly evolving and the other side has a say. And so like you have to adapt with it. And so what the kind of the vision that I got in my head as we did this was, okay, we set up home gyms, we coach online and we provide the same thing. We happen. It's a one-stop shop. And then if, if, if the, if this, the world, the vaccine gets out there and everything starts to shift back, now we have both. And, uh, but I don't think to answer your question, we're profit and, you know, the income statement for the month of March in my head, the first two weeks. No, it was just kind of like, Hey, let's take care of our people. I mean, that's all, the only way I can think I actually thought about it. I mean, did it ever occur to you? I've got gym equipment scattered all over the, you know, the greater Southern California area. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I did. Cause I was, I was thinking, how do I do this? And I remember at one point, taking all the addresses we had it and plotting it. And we were like LA to San Diego. Like I didn't even know how, <laughs> how I did it happen. And I got a map, a map chip that I made. And it, it's like looking at like, you know, troops on a, on a, on a map board. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And, and everyone would say to me exactly what you said. What are you going to do when you would try to open the gyms? And I go, honestly, I feel like I'm going to drop into, you know, slack to all my members. Cause we've always used at the gym. Hey, I need my stuff back. I was like, I think it's going to show up. And um, and that's what ended up happening. Memorial Day, I kind of uh, said, you know, they, they had opened up outdoor. I forget the restriction at that point. And I looked at, you know, what was happening. And I said, uh, like, I got to open back up. If I don't open back up, I'll never open back up. And so we built back out the two gyms um, right around Memorial Day. I mean, obviously, California is pretty restrictive. And, and we did a lot of stuff. You know, we... 
we took the windows out of the front of the gym and installed these big barn doors that open up so there's airflow, you know, and I think for for what should be talked about is it's the it's the mindset of, you know, I I'm responsible for my employees and my members and like we have to adapt. And that was the biggest greatest stressor on me was the employees, right? I mean, that's what I thought about. And sure, you get PPP, but I'm a brand new growing company, right? So I started 2019 with one employee I or two employees. I finished it with 10. And what do they do? They take the average of 12 months and then give you your PPP. So what did my PPP do for me in, in March of 2020? Well, it covered one payroll, right? Which it was great. I'm grateful for it. But like, you have to think beyond that. And I I think that's where like kind of some of the stuff that the Marine Corps taught me of, you know, constant evolving, you know, kind of paid. So as this is going on um, and, and, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, you're helping people, right? You're, you're enriching people's lives and you're doing all right. that. Um, do, do you ever start to tune into WIIFM? You know what that is? What's in it for me? With them? What's in it for me? Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I everyone was so grateful. They thanked me, this and that. And then I think, you know, two to three months in, and I don't blame a single one of them. I get it. But the gym's still closed. You know, maybe they're not doing the live online coaching. And they start, the emails just start to trickle in. Hey, Grant, you know, I, I've been paying, but, you know, this happened to me. I can't. Hey, I haven't been in the gym in two months turn off my membership. And I mean, we went from 150 members across two locations to 60. And I mean, just bam, there goes, you know, all the revenue. And, um, and yeah, you know, and everyone very grateful and don't hold it against a single person, right? Like, I, like, I totally get it. Like, I, I understand. It's like, you know, you have this car payment, and then all of a sudden you lose access to the car. Like, why, why are you going to keep paying for that? Um, but yeah, that's when I, you know, it became very stressful. And about that time, you know, I, the problem became that I couldn't get equipment because what I thought was if I can get equipment to my people, I can retain them. But who was quitting was people that I couldn't get stuff to because there wasn't any. So what was happening? Everyone sold out. Why? No imports are coming from China. The whole thing's, you know, messed up. I've always been kind of a made in USA guy, but like it hit home because of the impacts that it had on me. And I was like, Hey, we're just going to make it. And I remember going to a foundry here in Costa Mesa and going in there. And I said, Hey, you know, we'd already started buying steel and welding squat racks together. And at the time you could still find barbells and the tough thing was the plates. And I went in there and I said, Hey, I want to design a plate. Um, you know, blah, blah. And he was like, workout gear. And I said, uh, yeah, I said, so like, this is what I do around these gyms. This is what we make. You know, we'd probably already made a couple hundred squat racks at the time. And he goes, this is a foundry. We're not making work out gear. And I was like, okay. And the guy was real dismissive when I left. And so I started calling some different foundries and, and, you know, I just kind of got blown off. And then I went to the, the largest one in the U.S., Wapaka Foundry in Wisconsin. And there wasn't a number you could call. So I fill out like the, the contact form. And, I get a call the next day from, uh, you know, a salesman, Kevin still talk, I've probably talked to him every single day since. 
And I said, you know, and I said, Hey, they're like, this is what we've been doing. You know, this is my company. Like we want to do this. And, you know, at the time he, you know, we, we kind of went forward. I gave him the design. I had another Marine buddy, reservist buddy here who had had a, you know, a deployment delayed. So he was living at my house, but he happened to do CAD. And I said, Hey, this is how the plates need to be. Like we designed this thing, we send it over and he sends it back. And long story short, like to get started, it's like 150 K and I'm like, I've just lost all my members. Uh, like <laughs> revenue, revenue just took a huge hit. I'm not laughing him. at you. I'm just sort of chuckling no, at the, no, the, you, the whole yeah, situation. Right? Like, like, you know, revenue just took a huge hit. Uh, the news is getting bleaker by the day in terms of the hope of Jim's opening. Um, I can't like, buy steel and cut it and manufacture it at scale by welding squat racks but there's no plates yeah i'm gonna refi my house and take a bunch of money out and uh and so that's what i did and i i mean i there was a couple months there that i uh, i mean you just don't sleep right because you come down to every end because you know when you start a business anyway you're personally guaranteed so it's like everywhere you look, hey, I'm three years into these leases. And so this is, but I believed, I just thought what we were selling, which wasn't equipment and wasn't gyms, but was strength. I thought, okay, if gyms, you know, if gyms are not allowed to be open for who knows how long, then like gym equipment is going to go up because even if they don't want coaching and that stuff, like, like, you know, people aren't just going to stop working out. And I knew that based off the feedback we were getting from all the stuff. We were doing. Hey, I can't believe you brought me a barbell on 245s. Literally has saved my life during all this, right? I mean, that was constant. And so to the whiff on it became, hey, I need to do equipment. And then I'll kind of be hedged on both ends. And um, and the plates have been insane. I mean, the plates have been and, – and the learning process has been – you know, you design a plate, you think you got it all down, then you get the samples, you realize something's wrong, then you got to deal with coding, how am I going to code it? You know, and it's, it's just, I never thought I'd be in the online retail business, but it, it's definitely blown my mind. I mean, you want to talk about risk, like, <laughs> business owners who are listening to this certainly understand this, right? Because it's, it's not a risk that I can comprehend. Like he asked me to take a risk in combat. It's almost easier. Like I, I get the, the the pluses and minuses. I get the 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 good and the bad. I, I can weigh it all out in my head. Uh, and even at that, feeling like, hey, I'm better than the enemy. Uh, I theoretically I should come out on top on this one. But to to refi your house and and put everything you own on the line for this, um, what's that experience like compared to combat? Like, I mean. Adrenaline rush, yeah. complete fear. Is it nausea? Like all of the above? What are we talking here? So I think, but I think, I think you know. At first, it's like a little bit like manic, right? Like you know, you you kind of get pumped up and like you're going to do it. But I think the best way to put this that, and you'll relate to. So I had a buddy of mine, and I was calling him. I was like, dude, like, oh man, like I just like refied the house. Like all the money's out there. Like, like I I, I don't know if I can even pay rent at this gym over here. And I'm kind of explaining him the whole thing, and he goes. Well, Grant, like, is this worse than like what you saw in combat? And I said, yeah, way worse to an extent. I said, <laughs> human, li- human life is not on the line. I said, but here's the difference with the, with the Marine Corps. I said, I remember 
getting attacked, being up nonstop, like days on end. And like after three days, like passing out in the FDO, you know, uh, room and being asleep for like 18 hours. And I remember laying there being completely exhausted and thinking someone will step up. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's like what the core is. That's what the service is. Like, sure. You love to think that your service matters and that like Captain Brogy is important. But guess what? They had me slotted to go to 510 on the East Coast in Camp Lejeune. And I said, nope, I'm not staying in. What did they do? They filled it with another captain. And I bet that unit's just fine. It's how it's designed. And now my team at the Strenko was great, was great. But in the core or in the service, everyone takes on the risk. Everyone has skin in the game because your life's on the line, right? So everyone has it. So if the lieutenant falls over asleep or dies or whatever happens, someone has to step up because if they don't, the mission fails, people die, whatever it is. In business, now this is the thing I've learned the most this year. You have to set it up the same way. If, if there's not skin in the game for all, then what happens? You got Grant Brogy sweating bullets going, oh, yeah. man, how am I going to make this work? And so that's how I kind of correlate those things with risk. And then also, I mean, it, you know, it's turned out on the equipment side of the house. The gym business is still not good. On the equipment side of the house, it's turned out well for us. But it's, you know, you, you have to be, you have to be willing to make that decision and, uh, and you, and you have to make it fast, right? Because by the time you call the foundry and, and go through all of that, and I won't bore you with the details, but from the time I called them in April, I didn't have a product until September, right? So, I mean, this is not like you're going to manufacture a new thing that hasn't been made in the U S in decades. Like it, you know, it takes time. And so it's, uh. Yeah, it was a stressful few months. Jeez, <laughs> oh, I, can't, I can't even imagine. I mean, it's a great way to put it, honestly, because in combat, we all bear the same level of stress, and it's not that way for a business owner. Um, right. and even, even at that, you know, the employees lose their job. They'll go get another one. You lose the company, and there's nothing left. You know, it's 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 pick up, you know, you're down to the felt, so to speak, as they say in gambling terms, and, uh, you know, you got to start all over. I, I can't even imagine the, the nausea that you, you put your head on the pillow with each night. So where where are things now? I mean, I know we're... Uh, I'm not going to play doctor. I don't know if we're coming out of the pandemic, but we I feel yeah, like we're yeah. turning a corner. At least we're more adjusted to it. So uh, I know California's still under a ton of restrictions, but where is the strength co now and, and what's the, the, the short-term yeah. future for you guys? Yeah, so I mean, the, the strength co, both locations are open. Um, technically, you know, I'm supposed to be outside only, but, you know, we, we've done some ventilation stuff and, and, and it just came down to like, hey, if I'm if I'm closed, I'm closed forever. So, you know, we got both gyms open and, and we're and we're climbing back. You know, people are slowly coming back, but it's we're, California is definitely on a um, everyone's getting it right now. Right. Like everyone's getting it. And so it's it's the thing that we're all kind of used to now is, hey, I was around this person who's exposed to that person. So I can't come in for two weeks. But what we're seeing is people are coming back. And, and when stuff's happening, hiccups are coming. They're saying. Hey, I have COVID or this, and you know I'll be back in two weeks. So the gyms are on the rise slowly, and I don't know how that stays, you know, or if that stays forever. But I'm optimistic about the gyms, uh, and you know we've kind of built out a whole equipment line over the years uh, or over the years. So you know we make uh, we make barbells, we make uh, plates, we make the squat rack, we make the bench. We basically make everything that I kind of believe you need in for survival, and. Um, 
And it's interesting, you know, so we kind of hit our stride maybe the last month or two. And I felt like, oh, man, things are really good. I can limp the gyms along. They'll eventually come back. I'm optimistic like you. Things are about to turn the corner. You know, Americans are going to get back to normal. And then I'll have both of these new things. Um, And then what happened? Price of steel went up 30%. Why? No endpoints. None of the U.S. mills made anything for like five months this year. Let inventories get low. Economy started to come back online. Everyone went to get steel. There's no imported steel here. And so like prices went through the roof or went through the roof. Now, I'm still optimistic, but this is what I've learned the most, you know, being on the end of manufacturing and made in the USA. Everyone likes to say that, right? Probably most people that listen to the podcast are like, yeah, made in the USA. Then they go to check out and they're like, why is this so much more expensive? And, you know, it's what we're seeing with, you know, COVID and imports, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting. And so, you know, while if you, if we had talked a month ago, I would have said, yep, we're hitting our stride. We got a good, you know, product line out there. It's going to go. And I'm still optimistic. I still think we're hitting our stride, but I don't know what it means. The uncertainty, you know, it's, it's unpredictable. It's back, it's back to war fighting. It's ever changing, right? As soon as you think you have the, you know, the upper hand on the enemy, Hey, guess what? They got to vote too. And, you know, in this case is, is the enemy COVID? Is it, is it business and consumer? I don't care how you put it, but what you have to understand is if you're trying to, you know, make something work to trying to achieve the mission, the other side is making moves against you. And so it's, um, you know, I think overall right now we're in a good spot. Um, I, you know, I'm optimistic as, as we go forward. You know, we've ramped up production. We're getting ready to open up a fulfillment center in Georgia. And these are things that are crazy, right? If you had told me January 1st, 2020, Grant, in January 2021, you're talking to Mark Zeno about your experience and you're about to open up a fulfillment center in Georgia in which you're going to take weights from Wisconsin and ship them to Georgia and you're going to go out there and pay someone to box them up for them, warehouse them, and put a label on them so that your customers don't complain about shipping costs and so that shipping from South Carolina to New York, you know, doesn't – a product doesn't get damaged. I would have been like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but, I mean, I literally – it would blow your mind. But now, I mean, it's it's – every day it's a little more exciting. You know, it's like, hey, if I want this to work – I got a double production. And now, you know, when, when we do a run of plates, some have got to go to Georgia, some have got to go to California to cut down on shipping costs to the consumer. And, you know, stuff like that, um, yeah, it's ever-changing. It's ever-changing. It's crazy, man. Uh, what, what a ride. Let me ask you, uh, if, if I am a brand-new average Joe off the street, I've never been in the military and I've never visited a gym What's a tougher workout, Marine Corps PT or one of your sessions at your gym? You know, this probably won't be the answer that you want. I would say Marine Corps PT because what we're designed is not for that. You know, I think there's there, there's two things. There's training and there's exercise. Exercise is, hey, you come in, I kick your ass right now, I get you hot and sweaty, you're totally you know out of breath and you think it's over. You burn calories, great. How many donuts did I eat? How much, you know, calories that I burn? What's my body weight at the end of the day? And that's fine. And people love that stuff. But training is trying to make you anti-fragile and trying to make you more durable and robust for life. It's saying, hey, if I apply, and, and I feel like, you know, as, as a company and me, we've lived this, this year. 
But if I apply a stress to the body, it goes down into the recovery mode, starts to come back as a living organism and says, hey, this might happen to me again. I need to prepare myself for that. And it adapts. And so what does that look like in the weight room? You come in. I don't know. I'm sure you're lifting in great shape. But you come in and we teach you to squat, you know, proper mechanics and you do 225 for a set of five. That's a stressor. So the next time you come in the gym, it isn't, hey, now I'm going to, you know, do a completely different thing. No, I'm going to squat again because I know it's effective to use my whole body. But instead of 225, I'm going to go to 230. Two days later, instead of 230, I'm going to go to 235. This is something we leverage called the stress recovery adaptation cycle. It's saying, I'm not just thinking about today. I'm thinking about my longevity. And it's why, you know, my mother, when she started, came in. And if you looked at her, she's fit. You know, she's a runner her whole life. She went to do an air squat and she can't hold the bottom position of an air squat. And I said, that's okay. That's okay. And so, you know, we start saying, okay, first you're just going to air squat. Now we're going to hand you a five pound plate. Now we're going to hand you a 10 pound plate. Oh, there's a 15 pound bar on your back. Progress. Now she deadlifts over 200 pounds, right? And I have men that grow walking to my gym all the time. Can't do that. I go, hey, here's my 63 year old mom. But it's it's stress recovery adaptation, and it's um, yeah. So Marine Corps PT probably harder uh, on day one because we're more focused on like teaching you the process and the theory. What principles from the Marine Corps did you apply in running your business? Like, what are the what what are the constants? You know, do, do, what part of being a private business owner do you think you would have failed at had you not been a Marine? Uh, I think one, Marine Corps Doctrine Publication 1, war fighting, which I've already mentioned a few times, but that war is two opposing wills and it's constantly evolving and to never fall in love with your plan, right? I had this plan. I run gyms. There's eight racks in them, eight people coming at a time. A coach coaches them and this works. And 2020 completely turned that up on its head. And so adaptation would be the second thing, being able to adapt. That's the, that's the pure business nuts and bolts side. The biggest part, I think, is the leadership side and experience. And uh, part of it's leadership to your clients, right, and to your members. Um, because, you know, it is a very tight-knit company that we run. And when we did take care of people, you know, they took care of us through the early days. But also like the team, you know, like I, I talk about all this and you're talking to me and my name's on the podcast thing. But there's, you know, Mike Minigal, Dental and Sharon, Julia Gonzalez, Diana Mendoza, you know, all these people that work for me that are behind the scenes, you know, doing all this stuff and building the team and keeping the vision, you know, because everyone has their own COVID story of, you know, when people got down and what's next. But I think building, you know, a team that has a vision of, hey, like we can get something done here. I, I 100% learned that through the Marine Corps. I 100% learned the importance of keeping people focused during, you know, chaotic, stressful times. Um, so I think I think that's the that's a really, really, really big part. And, 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 and with that, you know, I got Mike Menegal, who was my uh, second employee, but first full-time employee. He goes to officer candidate school in the Marine Corps in four days. Because this year, he's, you know, he's watched this and he's seen the Marines that have come and worked hours for me for free, cutting steel and welding things and you name it. 
and he realizes, oh, this is much bigger than like yourself. This is, you know, we talked to him about it, and and he, and he just said, I, I saw when when shit hit the fan, and like the business is on the line, and like you don't know what's gonna happen, and now your house is on the line, and everything's on the line, and like these guys came, and I watched you trying to pay them like you pay me, and you and they said no. They said, no, 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 Marine in need, like we're here. And so, I mean, if there's one thing that I'm probably the most proud of, and it probably hurts my business the most, he's my most experienced coach and most, you know, close with the clients. But I'm like, man, if I left the core, started a business, was able to help a bunch of people through a really rough year, and then that business had impacts on another individual to go be a Marine officer, I'm proud of that. And if we go bankrupt, I'm still proud of that because it means that we were viewing it and 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 what we were trying to do was right in my opinion. What's left uh, for your Marine Corps career? Uh how much longer do you want to stay? In? You figured that part out yet taking it as it comes? I think I take it as it comes. This year's definitely changed it. My initial plans for 2020, I was going to be in JTAC school and, you know, I'm on the, the observer side of fires now and really wanted to pursue that seer and all those different things. And all those schools got canceled. And, and honestly, if they hadn't got canceled, I, I couldn't have really left the business and gone as you know, we've kind of described, but no, I, I want to get things back. Um, I, I'm a big systems guy, kind of getting things rolling. You know, I got drill coming up next weekend. Uh, it's just weird right now, particularly in California. You know, uh, you got to do a bunch of things remotely. You know, my first year in the reserves is not what I thought it was. My first year in the reserves, I've done one in-person drill, you know, and everything else. I've been in now 12 months. Everything else has been, you know, remote or virtual. Um, but, no, I'd like to stay um, as long as I can. I, you know, I'd like to stay in for the full run. Uh, I'd like to get another deployment in. Um, I'd like to get to JTAC school and do that side of the house. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and, uh, optimistic about that. Well, look, wish you nothing but best of luck as far as, uh, what the Marine Corps is going to have for you in the future, but certainly, um, your personal business, uh, I, I sincerely hope it continues to grow and succeed beyond all <laughs> of your wildest imaginations. Check them out online. It's the strength.co, uh, the strength.co. Uh, and just take a look at the, uh, you know, the pictures and, and the articles and everything that's been written about the gym and uh, all the work that you've done. And of course, they can reach out to you and contact you. And uh, again, you're branching out here into Georgia. So uh, that's right. you're going nationwide here soon, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's awesome. I appreciate you having us on. I, I love what you guys do. And uh, it's been great. Well, Grant, uh, again, I wish you nothing but the best of luck going forward. Thank you for taking your time to share your story and, uh, you know, reach people and uh, inspire people just to get in shape. You know, I think that's that's the other part of this whole thing. You know, we talk about inspiration from the military side of things, but uh, the, the post-military life and the inspiration you're providing there to the people that you're reaching on a daily basis is something that we can't underscore because uh, even though they're not wearing a uniform uh, and they are not following your orders, so to speak, uh, you're still leading them every day, and I think that's super important. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. All right, Grant Brogy, thanks for being part of the Hazard Grind, man. Awesome to be here. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. 
And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.